We praise your name this morning, Lord. We are so grateful that we can be called children of God and that because we are children of God in your home, there's a place for us. Thank you for welcoming us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for accepting us, Lord, and thank you for saving us. We have so many reasons to be thankful, so many blessings this morning, and we just want to lift those back up to you. Bless the Lord, all my soul. Lift it up. Bless the Lord, all my soul. Oh, my soul. Worship His holy name. Sing like never before. Oh, my soul. I worship Your As he often does, he's telling me to say something, so I'm going to say something here. How many of you sing in the car when you're driving? Turn the radio on, sing along. Okay. This song says, bless the Lord, O my soul, O my soul, worship his holy name. Sing like never before. So I don't care if you sing in the shower, if you sing in the car. When you are singing for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, you're to sing like never before because we have a reason to be grateful. We have a reason to be thankful. 10,000 reasons, in fact. And I guarantee you, if we sat back this morning, we could think of 10,000 things that we're upset about. We're really good at that. But if we sit here this morning, we could also think of 10,000 reasons to be grateful. For one, we're here, we're breathing, we're alive, and we get the chance to worship the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So let's sing it like never before. Let's sing that one more time. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. Oh my soul. Worship His holy name. Sing like never before. Oh my soul. I worship Your
with us here at Ashland, and uh, I'm glad that you braved, uh, there we go, braved the elements coming in this morning, and uh, it, I think fall is officially here. Um, take it or leave it, it's here, and uh, I apologize, some of you came in this morning to Sunday school and the air condition was on, and uh, so, just, <laughs> I apologize about that, but we got it fixed, as you can hopefully tell, and uh, we'll adjust that rather quickly, uh, but it is good to see you this morning, and uh, as Jody mentioned, I think we can agree as we come together today, we have... Uh, a myriad of reasons um, that we can praise God and we can bless His name together. And I hope that you can find something to be thankful for today as we celebrate, as we worship, as we study His Word together. So I'm glad that you are here. And uh, if you are visiting with us for the first time today, or maybe it's been a while, we're doing things a little bit differently. And so um, right in front of you should be a Connect card. If you would take a minute and, uh, and fill that out and either give it to myself or drop it in one of the offering boxes on your way out, to have a record of your attendance, and uh, we are thankful that you are here today. And if you're online with us, uh, we are glad to have you as well. I know a lot of people take advantage of that, and so uh, we are thankful for all the work that has gone into making that happen as well. Lord willing, and um, we'll have it without any hiccups today as well. So let's do this. Let's pray together as we continue our worship, and uh, let's thank the Lord for the chance that we have to be together today. We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your mercy that we find new every morning. God, we thank you for your word and the opportunity we have to come together, to gather around it, to learn from it. Lord, I know a lot of work has gone into this morning, whether through live stream, to get ready for the 
uh, for the worship time through song. Uh, Lord, I pray that a lot of prayer has gone into this morning as well, because God, we don't want to come together, go through the routine, sing a few songs, and endure a message. God, I pray that our heart would be that we came together to worship and to grow and to become more like Christ because we've been here. Lord, you've called us to a great calling of impacting our community for Christ. God, I pray that this morning might be a catalyst, might be something to get us excited and motivated uh, to share with others your love and your grace and your mercy. So Lord, would you be pleased with what is said, with what's sung today? And Lord, we just want you to be pleased. We want you to be glorified in it. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Why don't you stand back up with us? Thank you, Lord. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but hope. Trust in Jesus' name. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. But holy trust in Jesus' name. Christ alone. Christ alone. The cornerstone. Weak made strong. In the Savior's love. Through the storm. He. darkness seems when darkness seems to hide his face I rest on his unchanging grace in every high and stormy gale my anchor holds within the veil sing that again my anchor holds within the veil. Yes, he's Christ alone, the cornerstone, weak made strong in the Savior's love through the
okay. I know it was kind of a somber moment, but I'm going to ask again, how many of you love Jesus this morning? This song, um, I picked it out. It's kind of a worship song, kind of not, but we're going to all sing it together. And it's a real simple song. You'll get the hang of it once you see it up there. I'd love for you to sing it along, but don't sing it to me. Sing it to him. If you really love him this morning, let's lift it up. All things have passed away. Your love has stayed the same. Your constant grace remains the cornerstone. Things that we thought were dead are breathing in life again you cause your sun to shine on darkest night for all that you've done we will pour out our love this will be our anthem song Jesus we love you oh how we love you you are the one our hearts adore the hopeless have their hope the orphans now have a home all that was lost has found its place in you you lift our weary hands you strong instead you took these rags and made us beautiful for all that you've done we will pour out our love this will be our anthem song Jesus, we love you. Oh, how we love you. 
lift it up and sing it. Jesus, we love you. Oh, yes, we do. Oh, how we love you. You are the one. Our, our hearts adore. Our hearts adore. Sometimes we complain and we whine and we moan, but Lord, we are so very thankful for the blessings in our life today. We give you praise, we give you honor, we give you glory, and we're so blessed to be in your presence this morning. Thank you for meeting us here. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you grab your Bibles, go with me to 1 Samuel chapter 26. Judy asked you an important question because it's going to provide for us a uh, very appropriate springboard for our study this morning. He asked you if you loved Christ and um, you were never set up better for an opportunity to respond. 
But here's the part where things get a little, um, a little ringy. It gets a little ringy, and it gets a little difficult. Um, and I want you to think about this. The Bible says in the Gospels that if, if you love me, Jesus says, you will keep my, what? You'll keep my commandments. So attached to love is a, uh, a means of obedience. It is a means of a change in behavior, change in the way that we live. Because certainly our heart would be that we are communicating our love for Christ in the way that we carry ourselves on a day-to-day basis. And so when we're looking at the Old Testament, I don't want us to lose sight of the fact that this is more than just a narrative that we're studying and trying to pull out some different principles and things to help us. But the Old Testament is just as, um, just as inspired as the New Testament. The things that we learn there are just as vitally important as we, as we study the life of David. It is equal is what you would find in the New Testament. And I don't think that we doubt that at all, but what I'm going to share with you this morning is going to be, um, it's going to be one of those big horse pills that the, doctor, the, the, that the doctor expects you to swallow and you really struggle with. Um, I don't know about you, but in our house, there is a certain segment of the population of our home that really struggles with taking pills. Um, I can't do it. And, and when it doesn't matter the size of it, it really, that, that has no bearing on the ability of me to swallow a pill. And some of my children have inherited that trait. And, uh, and, and the same thing is true when it comes to studying God's Word. Something, listen, if I ask you if you love Christ, that's an easy pill to swallow. We know the answer to that. Sometimes when we study God's Word, there are um, demonstrations of that love that we struggle with a little more than others. And I'm afraid that in our culture right here, um, looking towards the end of October in this year, um, this is going to be one of those pills that are a little harder to struggle uh, to, to struggle with, to swallow. Because here's the thing. If you were here Wednesday, this is going to sound a little bit similar, and you're going to understand why we discussed it on Wednesday night, kind of setting the stage for this morning. Um, if you were to be honest, <laughs> you do not have to answer this out loud, no pressure. But if you were to be honest, have you made anyone angry in the past week? You don't have to, well, see, when people laugh, normally they, I know the answer to that one already then. Have you made anybody angry or has anybody made you angry? And listen, we live in a day where making people angry is extremely easy to do. It doesn't take a lot to tick somebody off. I don't know if you realize that or not. But you can say the right thing, and you can, you can, you can anger somebody at the drop of a hat. Um, and must I make examples of how this happens? I mean, all we have to say, do is to speak to somebody about a, a presidential or a political issue, and you can, cause a, you, can, you can create a rise out of that person immediately, um, depending on where they stand. There's a lot of hot topic issues right now that if I made one particular statement, and, and you know which ones you can make, okay? You're not ignorant. You know which ones you can make about a specific topic that can create a rise in somebody. Um, for crying out loud, if you stop too long to stop something, you can make people angry. It doesn't matter really what you do. You're going to tick somebody off at some point. And it seems like it's becoming more and more easy to make enemies than friends. Have you noticed that? Bridges are being burned, sometimes over issues that shouldn't even lit a match. The fierceness, as we get into 1 Samuel 26, the fierceness of Saul's wrath 
which is directed towards David, is now going to continue to burn hotter and hotter as he pursues David, as his anger continues to take seed in his heart. And that anger is going to turn into bitterness because we know at this point, Saul wants David dead. So yet again, as we go to chapter 26, Israel comes back to Saul regarding David's whereabouts. And as naturally going to be Saul's reaction, he's going to pursue David, but this time into the wilderness of Ziph. Saul has grown in respect for David's leadership. How do we know this? Because this time Saul brings with him a larger army than usual, some 3,000 men to come after David. Believing to be near David, Saul sets up camp on the hill of, uh, of Hachila, or however you want to pronounce that hill. He gets some much-needed rest. Meanwhile, while Saul is resting, David is leading, and they come and they observe Saul from a distance. Now, to make sure that David is correct, he sends spies in to verify that this, in fact, is Saul, and sure enough, it was. So before we get to our text this morning in chapter 26, I want you to see verse 5 specifically as we work our way through this, okay? It's going to sound a lot like last week's study in the cave of Engedi, and it's almost like God is opening up a door that's very similar so that David can have his revenge. But I want you to see verse number 5 before we go any farther. The Bible says in verse number 5, And David arose and came to the place where Saul had pitched. And David beheld the place where Saul lay, and Abner the son of Ner, the captain of his host. And Saul lay in the trench, and the people pitched around about him. So I want you, again, picture this in your mind. Okay, don't lose sight of what's going on. Saul is in hot pursuit of David, finds himself totally asleep. David finds himself um, observing this, getting some information, verifying that this, in fact, is Saul. And what you find there is, it definitely is, but the scene that David describes immediately grabbed my attention as I look at this in verse number five. Saul is asleep, and the Bible says that he is asleep in a trench. Now, the way I understand this is, it, it is it's not literally that they dug out a ditch in the ground, but it is used to describe the situation where all of his men, 3,000 strong, have created a barrier with their chariots and their baggage and wrap that wall kind of of chariots and baggage around Saul to protect him, which makes sense. We know that's part of his job. And so they are literally encamped around Saul to form that barrier of protection for the king. But the one observation concerning Saul is this. We know him at this point to be a pretty cowardly guy, right? Think about it. When he was plagued with disobedience, he lost the kingdom. When he was challenged by a Philistine giant, where did we find him? He was cowering a tent, waiting on a teenage boy to show up on the scene to handle business. Instead of dealing with David himself, remember, he demoted David in a cowardly act in hopes that David would in turn go out and fight and be killed in battle. If you remember, he attempted the murder of David and his own son out of his jealous rage, and he missed all three times up to this point, twice with David and once with Jonathan. He begs for mercy from David after realizing his life was spared in the cave of Engedi. And now we see with the current sleeping arrangement that Saul had one thing in mind. Do you think for a second Saul even cared about his people? Do you see any concern for Saul regarding the people that he has been anointed to be king of over? 
Remember, all Israel wanted was for a king to go out and to fight their battles for him. And right now, what you find is the reverse happening. Saul is sleeping in his chariot or in his tent, whatever the situation was. And all of his guys are wrapped around him, creating that barrier of protection. Saul was interested in one thing, and that was he was interested in his men serving and protecting him. But if you're expecting Saul to serve and protect his people, you might as well forget it because that's not a part of his agenda. But then you think about David. And when you compare the two, it's amazing to, to think about. After finding Saul's camp, David concocts a plan that must have sounded like a suicide mission to his men. And he comes back and he mentions to Ahimelech and his nephew Abishai, he says this, I've found Saul. I know where he's at. There's a lot of people right there, but I think we can do this. Let's sneak in. Makes sense, right? Doesn't make any sense. Where is the logic in that idea? And could you imagine the reaction of these guys when they hear this idea? I mean, they they are literally running for their lives. They have found Saul asleep. And even if they just wake up a couple people who creates a chain reaction, This is going to be a brutal outcome for David and his men if they follow through on the plan to sneaking into the camp. But that's what David says we need to do. And so as we study this out in chapter 26, Ahimelech stays, but Abishai agrees. Now think about these odds. You have two versus 3,000. Do you see the difference, though, between the leadership of Saul and David? David did not demand anything of his men that he himself was not willing to do. I will go with you, we will fight, and I will die right next to you. Meanwhile, Saul is passed out asleep because he's got the security blanket of his men wrapping around him. Amazing leadership principle there. So for the remainder of our study, I believe God is trying to show us three things. Now, so far, this probably in a big pill, this relatively easy to swallow. This is where things get tough. I want to show you this morning three components, if you will, of this chapter in dealing with how do we love our enemies. Because again, listen, we live in a day where there are a lot of people that we disagree with, and because we disagree with them, that automatically means we can't talk to them, we can have no relationship with them. As a matter of fact, we we just have to dislike them. Because we disagree. Where did that come from? Why is it that we can't have any longer civil conversation without it becoming a a bashing session or some reason we have to tear down the other people instead of just still being able to love them? And I know that sounds like a weak position, but I want you to see in our text what David demonstrates for us. And the first thing he shows us, and we're going to pick this up in verse number 7, as we learn how do you develop this loving attitude towards those people that we count maybe not an enemy, that's a strong word, but how do we deal with people we disagree with? What about the people that we don't see eye to eye with? Well, look at verse number seven, and the first thing we learn about this is we have to develop a loving mindset. We have to change the way we think about people that we disagree with. And if there was ever a stronger case for this, I'm not sure that you'll find it, at least in the Old Testament, Because we can certainly understand that David and Saul probably aren't best friends at this point. They're not going to go out for dinner tomorrow night. They're not going to hang out and watch a movie. They're not going to watch a game together. They are at odds. So look at verse number 7. So after the plan is laid out, 
And they have decided that they're going to sneak into the camp, verse number 7. So David and Abishai came to the people by night, and behold, Saul lay sleeping within the trench, and his spear stuck in the ground. There's this trusty spear. We're going to come back to that. Stuck in the ground at his bolster, but Abner and the people lay round about him. Then said Abishai to David, God hath delivered thine enemy into thine hand this day. Now, therefore, let me smite him. I pray with the spear even uh, to the earth at once, and I will not smite him the second time. And David said to Abishai in verse 9, Destroy him not, for who can stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? I don't want you to lose sight of the last phrase of verse number 9 again. We'll come back to that as well. That is a pivotal statement that David just gave to you. And so the situation sounds a lot like last week where Saul is sitting vulnerable, wide open to attack, David seems like he has received a, a door swung wide open by God to kill his enemy and take the throne that he knows is his. But we find in verse number eight a different perspective that's shared by Abishai. I want you to, again, we got to compare Abishai and we got to compare to Saul against David, who is our, our character study for this study. And Abishai's perspective was this. Now give him some credit, okay? Abishai was the one that was willing to go sneak into the camp. He was the one that was courageous enough to embark on the mission with David as crazy as it might have seen and come what may. But listen, he also understood that there had been a covenant that had been made between David and Saul. David wasn't going to kill him. He knew that because David promised him, as he remember that story last week where Saul was walking out of the cave of Engedi. David follows him with a piece of his garment dangling in the air saying, Saul, I had a chance and I didn't take it. I will not kill you. And remind yourself, he will remain true to this. David will not take the life of Saul. He sticks to his word. But if you notice what Abishai's, his opinion, his perspective of, of this was what? He respected the commitment between David and Saul. So what was his? Abishai said, hey, let me take care of this guy. I know you can't do it, David, but maybe, maybe just for a second, God is reopening the door because the first shot we had in the cave, we let that one pass and it was wrong. That's why Abishai says, we won't miss this time. Did you catch that at the end of the verse? There won't be a second time. I'll take his spear, I will pin him to the ground, and everything will be all good, David and you will have remained true to your word, and I will be the one that takes the life of Saul. I know you can't do it, so let me. Well, the question then is, is this God's will for the situation? Is this what God desired for this instance? Because when you look back in our text, in verse number 8, I want you to see this carefully. Then said Abishai to David, God hath delivered your what? Did you catch it? God has delivered your what? Your enemy. Hang on to that word. The perspective of Abishai was one that because of the disagreement between David and Saul, that automatically means that Saul is David's enemy. And I did a quick study, a quick search, and I could not find one instance in the Scriptures Correct me if I'm wrong, and please, I, I'm, I am transparently telling you that I don't know this to be factually true, but I couldn't find an instance otherwise. I couldn't find one instance where David refers to Saul as his enemy. Not one. Now, mind you, there's a lot of Psalms that you can read through. There's a lot of pleas for God to, um, 
free David from his enemies. Okay, so we know that that's there. But specifically targeting Saul, I can't find one instance where the perspective of David was a reference to Saul as his enemy. But the perspective of Abishai was, this guy is your enemy. Pointing at Saul. Had Saul wronged Abishai directly, though? The conflict was between David and Saul. The answer to that question is no. Was this Abishai's, Abishai's battle to fight? No. He was taking sides with his leader, with his friend. And mind you, this is, this is a side note. There is always great danger when we take up offenses of others. Be careful with that. Now, I'm going to give you a clue. We're going to discuss that topic Wednesday night. The Bible says this in Proverbs 26, verse 17. He that passeth by and meddleth with the strife belonging not to him is like one that taketh a dog by the ears. What happens when you grab a dog by the ears? You're going to get some type of, of reaction, most likely not desirable. Be careful when you take up the offenses of others. Be careful with that. We'll talk about it Wednesday night. So, Abishai's perspective was, Saul is your enemy. Let me do something about this, okay? But here's the deal. If we are going to learn to love our enemies, we have to change the way that we think about them. Abishai wasn't thinking about Saul the way David was thinking about Saul. And of more importance, Abishai wasn't thinking about Saul the way God would have him to think. So what was David's perspective? Well, you find it in verse number 9. And David said to Abishai, destroy him not. For who can stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed? Not once does he say, you know what, Abishai, you're probably right here. This guy's pretty awful. He wants me dead. You know, I, I can see where you're coming from. But David's perspective, being a man after God's own heart, was to see Saul differently than Abishai did. David chose to see Saul as God saw him, as the Lord's anointed. Now watch. David knew two things. He knew Saul had already lost the throne. He also knew he was to be the next king of Israel. And yet, David still respected the office of Saul. Two opportunities now to get revenge. Twice now, opportunity to kill off Saul and to take the throne that is rightfully his. But David did not refer to Saul or see Saul as his enemy. And even though he was at odds with Saul, he knew, he knew that Saul wanted him dead. But David consistently agreed with God and he did not see Saul as an enemy, but he always extended mercy to his enemy. Did you catch that? How hard is that? How difficult is it to show somebody mercy who's running their mouth about you behind your back? How difficult is it to be merciful towards somebody who seems like their entire day revolves around hurting you or to undercut you or to steal the promotion or to talk about you, even if it's true, to talk about you behind your back? How hard is it to show mercy to somebody that you don't agree with? And David's consistent demonstration was not one of revenge. It was not one of accumulating a crowd to be a support system and, and tell them how bad the other person was. David consistently uplifted Saul in the eyes of his people and was faithful in extending mercy. But let's be honest, there's pill number one that's hard to swallow. When we don't agree with somebody and we can't see eye to eye on it with them and we definitely can't get along with them, mercy is the last attribute that we want to show them. 
As a matter of fact, we're probably thinking, I have a couple of attributes I'd like to show you right now, and it's not mercy. But isn't it crazy that David presents to us a, a shifting of his mindset? He knew the intentions of Saul, and yet he doesn't take advantage of opportunities to wipe him off the face of the earth. Is that not an amazing thought? But as we consider who David is, a man or a woman after God's own heart must change the way that we look at people that we don't agree with and begin to see them not as enemies, not as somebody that I don't agree with, but we see them as God sees them, as a creation of His. And listen, if they stand on the opposite side of the political aisle than you do, I hate to break it to you, God still loves them. And I understand that on some of, the, some of the platforms that people might stand on and some of the issues that they take a stand on, if we disagree with them, we're not saying we have to adopt their point of view, but we are here to say they still deserve mercy because God's willing to show them mercy and God still loves them. Why can't we? And please understand, I'm not saying that if we are coming from a biblical perspective that we compromise our standards and we, and we, we go, go against God's word and we adopt theirs. I'm saying we adopt what Paul says and we teach the truth in love. Where has that gone? Why is it that we have such a hard time showing mercy to somebody we disagree with when, listen, even if the most wicked of persons turns to God, God's reaction is going to be mercy and forgiveness, and we're going to have a hard time with that if we observe it in our own lives. God, why would you forgive them? They don't deserve that. Listen to me, this is a hard pill. But we live in a day right now where it is so hard to see other people beyond their issues, beyond their stances, beyond their positions, and to view them as a creation of God. Listen, I don't even think anybody in this room has a bounty on their heads, do they? Does anybody want you dead right now? I mean, maybe they said something to you on social media you didn't like, but they don't want you dead. David was wanted. He was a fugitive of the law and a fugitive of Saul. And yet even then, he said, mercy over revenge, mercy over proving a point, mercy over whatever might have been the human tendency. Ours must be a change in mindset first. If you don't change the way you think about people, it'll never change the way that you behave towards them. Now, seeing people from a different perspective changes the way that we interact with them. It has to. So David also developed a loving methodology. And I'm going to tell you right now, Daniel or somebody in the back, I'm going to have a heat stroke. Because um, it just, it is burning hot up here. Um, maybe it's just me, and I, I apologize. This isn't about me, but it's getting really hot. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know where it's at right now. He developed a loving mindset, but he also developed a loving methodology. The way that he interacts with Saul is going to change because of the way that he thought about him. And you find that in verse number 9. Abishai's perspective, enemy must die, right? That was kind of the conclusion of it. David's was not enemy, God's anointed. And what are the first words in response to Abishai in verse 9? Do not what? I, I heard of the S and the T of the word. Somebody, somebody whispered it. Do not what? Don't destroy them. Now listen, if somebody wants you dead and you have opportunity to do so, how many of us, our knee-jerk reaction is going to be destruction? Maybe not physically, but verbally. Maybe not physically, but emotionally. 
When we have opportunity to find revenge, how many of us, our knee-jerk reaction is destruction of that person that we don't agree with? I've got to prove them wrong. I've got to make sure they know I'm right and they're not. I've got to make sure, and we, we, we battle a battle that is not eternally focused and it has no eternal value, and we get drudged down, we get torn down by it, and so we look at David's mind for just a second. Maybe there's some questioning in the back of his mind. Did he miss a God-given opportunity in the cave of Engedi and God's giving him a second chance to handle his business? Was that a blown opportunity? See, there's a principle regarding how we handle our enemies. Our methods must be based on conviction, not on circumstances. Because if circumstances ruled the day, Saul would be dead right now. David had established the conviction that this was God anointed before the cave, before this instance in the wilderness of Ziph. David knew God would be pleased when David honors Saul's position as king. Listen, if we are convinced this morning that the person we cannot see eye to eye with is not our enemy, but a creation of God, if that's our conviction, our behavior, our methodology, our desire would not be to tear them down at all. And what's amazing about David's overall concern in verse number nine is this. You notice this, David is not desirous of finding the safe way out of this, is he? He put himself right in harm's way. He wasn't interested in taking the easy road. And I'm going to tell you this, sometimes it's harder to control our tongues than it is to voice our opinion and set somebody straight. Sometimes it's harder to put our enemies in their place than it is to allow love to cover a multitude of sins. And David is not interested about the safe way out, but as a matter of fact, it's about doing what God would have him to do because if you look at the end of verse number, verse number 9, his perspective was, I have to love the Lord's anointed, because his concern was what? I want to be found. What is the last word in verse number nine? I want to be found guiltless. Do you see the perspective that David has here? David's concern was greater for his guiltlessness than his safety. Sure, he could have killed Saul. I mean, he could have green-lighted Abishai and said, yeah, go take care of that for me. I appreciate it. But listen what happened in chapter 24 and remind yourself what happened when he just cut the hem of the garment, what happened to him? He felt guilty. He learned a lesson that day with cutting that hem off of the bottom of Saul's garment. He didn't want to be guilty before the Lord anymore. He knew that. Given another opportunity, he chose guiltlessness. That's what ruled the day. That was his conviction. He didn't want to be at odds with his God. Now, I understand um, when we choose to do evil to an enemy, we are no longer innocent before God. As a matter of fact, sometimes we invite the punishment of God because we respond so poorly to the people we don't agree with. And, and I also understand the logic in our minds is, don't you understand what they said or did? Don't you understand how bad it hurt? Don't you understand that they have totally neglected me after how many years of a relationship don't you understand how painful and hurtful to my reputation this was? Don't you understand how bad this was to my life? And we could look at David and say the same thing. Why didn't David say to his men, do you not understand how wicked Saul is? Again, show me one instance where David talked to his men and bashed Saul. Show me one time. 
you're going to be hard-pressed to find it. But here's what the Bible teaches us in the New Testament in Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. And if it be possible, as much as lies within you, live peaceably with all men. Swallow that pill real quick and tell me if you choke. <laughs> that is a tough calling. If we were to look at those verses, we, we might try to find a loophole. Because definitely we are living in a time where peace is totally non-existent and conflict is always present, so it seems. But for us who are believers, who listen, you already convicted yourself a minute ago with Jody. You've already professed to a love for Christ. Then here's what God says. Recompense is never ours for the taking. However, remaining guiltless is always our responsibility. And let God handle the revenge. Look at verse number 10. That is, that's David's mindset. Don't destroy. Let God handle them. Look at verse 10. We haven't read it yet. David said, furthermore, as the Lord liveth, the Lord will smite him. Did you catch that? I know we didn't read it yet, but that's an amazing statement. How satisfying would it have been for David to be involved in the death of Saul? I mean, that, that, he might have even patted himself on the back or gone back home and expected parades like he did before. But David's perspective was different. Revenge is not mine to be had. Let God deal with them. Don't destroy them. Don't react. Don't, don't behave yourself unwisely, but let God deal with this thing. One of the quickest ways to get overheard is to allow God handling, to allow God to handle the person that caused it. David told Abishai, we'll let God take care of this. When God handles things, I'll remind you, in verse number 9, it's always in the right place. When God handles things, in verse number 10, it's always in the right time. And when God handles things, in the second part of verse number 10, God always does it with the right method. I'm going to tell you this much. From personal experience, when I handle things, at least one of those three statements are always voided. Generally speaking, when I handle things, the methodology is, is wrong, my timing can be way off, and even the place that I choose to handle such matters might be the inappropriate place. That's why we kick it back to God. Lord, you've got to do this. I've got to trust you in your perfection and in your knowledge to handle these things according to your wisdom. Revenge isn't mine, but guiltlessness is my responsibility. Twice David says, this is the Lord's anointed, so as such, let him alone. So instead of, watch this, instead of taking Saul's life, they do something different. They sneak into the camp, they steal a jug of water, they take his infamous spear. Okay, did you, here, let's read this real quick, because I'm going to drive this home and we're done for the morning. <laughs> watch. So verse number 12, so David took the spear and the cruise of water from Saul's bolster and they gat them away, and no man saw it, nor knew it, um, nor, neither awake, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord was fallen upon them. But much like was the circumstance with the cave of Engedi, the same is true here. David gets outside of the camp, in verse 13, David went over to the other side, stood on the top of a hill afar off, a great space between them, okay? Uh, he's he's going to create a buffer to be able to do this statement and then get away, smart, in verse 14, and David cried to the people and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Answerest thou not, Abner? 
He targets Abner, the captain, the one who is responsible for the safety of Saul primarily. Answerest thou not, Abner? Then Abner said in verse 14, Who are you that cries to the king? And David said to Abner, Art not thou a valiant man, and who is like unto thee in Israel? Wherefore then thou hast not kept the Lord thy king? For there came one of the people in to destroy the king thy lord. But verse 16, This thing is not good that thou hast done as the Lord liveth. You... Abner, are worthy to die because you haven't kept your master, the Lord's anointed. Look at verse 17. All of this has taken place right in the middle of him. Saul wakes up, and guess what he recognizes immediately? Doesn't have to see him. They don't have to shake hands. They don't have to fist bump. Nothing like that. He hears the voice of David. And Saul knew David's voice. It was the same one that used to play the harp and sing to him to calm the evil spirits. It was the same one that called out to him as he was exiting the cave of Engedi, and it's the same voice of David that has spared him once again. But I want you to see this, okay? Stay with me. And Saul knew David's voice and said, Is this thy voice? What does he say? Tell me. Thy son. Hold on now. What we didn't cover real quickly, what we didn't talk about this morning so far was one chapter before Saul decides to give, to give David's wife to another man. Remember, Saul had given his, his daughter to David. David became Saul's son-in-law. But right at the end of chapter uh, 25, verse 44, but Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Falti, the son of Laish, which was of Galim. So David is no longer the son-in-law of Saul. Why did he call him his son? Think about this. Has Saul yet to be endearing towards David whatsoever? No. I mean, as a matter of fact, two different spears were chucked out of my head. Um, the boys craft these for me this morning before Sunday school because, believe it or not, people just don't have spears sitting around their house anymore. So the boys put these together for me to illustrate the spears of Saul. Saul had never had anything good to say about David up to this point. As a matter of fact, twice he chucked a spear at David to pin him against the wall. Why did he call David his son? Early on, David was referred to as the son of Jesse. Wouldn't even call him by name. But now there's a term of endearment that is mentioned. Why? David had already proven his point when he cut the hem of Saul's skirt. What's he trying to prove, prove this time? Let me ask you, what was so worthy of the risk of sneaking into Saul's camp that David would risk life and limb to get in there to take a spear and a cruise of water and get out and say something? He had already proven everything up to this point. Why do it again? Any thoughts? I wrestled with this one for a while. What did he prove? What would have been greater about this opportunity than the last in the cave? Well, I'm glad you asked because I know that was weighing on your mind, okay? I know you were thinking, why did they do all this? What's the motive? Both men sneak back outside of the camp. David begins to yell, Abner! Remember, this is not only Saul's captain, but also his cousin. Oh, Abner, you messed up big time this, this time, buddy. You are worthy of death because you had one job, Abner, just one job. The guy that's in the middle, keep this guy alive, and you failed. You ought to die right now, Abner. Verse 17 again, Saul refers to David as a son. And what you see is, 
David being of no relation to Saul any longer, but is referred to as a son, I think that there is some importance to that statement. Because what you see is a transition from David being the son of Jesse to now an explanation of an intimate or a relational title. My son, was, was Saul schmoozing us a bit? Maybe. Maybe he was. Was he? <laughs> what was his motive? We don't know. But Saul did admit that David had his life in his hands. But look at verse 21. Then said Saul, I have sinned. Return, my son, David, for I will no more do thee harm, because my soul was precious in thine eyes this day. Behold, I have played the fool, no kidding, and have erred exceedingly. Listen, one thing is true. Saul admitted that David held his life as precious. Did you catch that? Saul says to David, my life was valuable in your eyes. You could have taken it now twice, and you chose not to. You opted to take the high road. So David adopted a new perspective, a new methodology. Now here's our last statement, it's verse 24. Why did he do that? Remember the question was, why risk it? Why take a chance? Here it is, verse 24. And David speaking to Saul said, And behold, as thy life was much set by this day in mine eyes. What in the world does that mean? What does it mean if somebody's life is much set by? It's a value statement. I value your life, Saul. Can I remind you this morning, the point of relationships is not what we can get out of them and to convince them that they're, right, they're wrong and we're right. The point of relationships is what we can invest into them. And when we decide to make enemies, when that decision is made and the line in the sand is drawn, we have now, we have now exercised our will against influencing them for eternity. We have, we have pushed them away, and also we have pushed away the influence we could have over that person for eternity. If we're not viewing them from a place of value, we're not seeing them how God sees someone. What an amazing statement. As he, as he stands there dangling, and I think this is probably a little large, but for those of you in the back, um, standing, hanging Right in front of the eyes, the spear and the, the cruise of water. And Saul says, listen, I risk my life to grab your spear, of which, if you notice a couple verses later, David gives it back. Man, talk about a humbling experience. That must have been for Saul. <laughs> I took your spear. Here, you can have it back. I proved my point. Why? Why? Why take these items? Why take a spear, the, the symbol of authority and strength? Why take water, a symbol of something that is life-giving? Why take it outside the camp? Why announce to everybody? Why do it? Because David had a message for his enemies, and his message resonates from the voice of God, and that is, I don't care that you hate me. I don't care that we don't agree. I love you and value your life as if God did. And I don't care what the risk may entail. I don't care what it may ask of me. Whatever it takes to communicate you, a loving perspective, Saul, I'm willing to do it. I value your life. The risk of sneaking in, snatching a spear and a jug of water was worth it because it created an opportunity for David to announce to his enemy the greatest message that anybody could announce, and that is, Saul, I love you. 
More love talk.